welcome back for another episode of the Future Fossils Podcast. I'm Michael Garfield. And I am Evan Snyder. And we are uh, hanging out today talking about time and its uh, effect on us and our place in it. Yeah, well, this this time it seems uh, our first podcast focused more on the geometry and the geography of time. You know, very big abstract stuff, but the the uh, unrecorded early part of this conversation Evan and I were mostly talking about winter and how we're both winter babies and how the evidence seems to be compiling that whether or not the the vast broader arches and arguments and assertions of astrology are accurate that there are in fact measurable hormonal balances uh, in that differ uh, from children born in different seasons. And uh, so, you know, a winter baby is uh, somebody that had to survive a pregnancy through different seasons than a summer baby. And, you know, historically, there are, uh, you know, there, there are these uh, similarities between children that are born in the months where the sunlight is very dim and the hours of the sun are few uh, and yet here we are in a society that uh, has forgotten about the quality or the kairos of time has forgotten that that each moment is not uh, identical to every other moment and that you know we we tend to worship the chronos or just rather the the measured passage of time and in so doing we lose this you know, a full half of the information of our experience. And so we end up in this society where we have uh, pathologized sadness and introspection and, you know, this sort of thoughtful, uh, it, curious, but uh, somewhat morose personality type. Let's see, hyperactivity, for example. Um, depression, anxiety, uh insomnia, uh, OCD, in a way for me are unchanneled amounts of energy present in many people that could actually be used to great benefit. If... Yeah, that's the, uh, the Sir Ken Robinson TED Talk on the educational system and how broken it is because it forces every child to stay seated and how they know uh, through psychological experiments that people that are required to keep their hands still on the table perform poorly at mathematical tasks compared to people that are allowed to move and, you know, w whether they're even aware of it or not, you know, count, count on their fingers or, you know, do this, this sort of fully embodied calculation. And that's, you know, so, so this is what happens. Uh, we, we pose a real threat to our complete being by ignoring what we could learn from allowing different times of the annual ring, you know, the, the, the movement of seasons. But then also there's a, you know, the lunar cycle nested within that 13 moon year where uh, every, every week, uh, Douglas Rushkoff talks about this in his book, Present Shock, which for those of you interested in time is a fantastic, highly recommended book. And he, he mentions how, while he was researching it, he found that the lunar month moves through four weeks, each of which has a surge of a particular neurotransmitter. So one week of the month is serotonin, one week is norepinephrine, 
one week is dopamine, and one week is acetylcholine. And these four weeks of the month lead to four very different types of behavior. Or you, know, you can actually feel uh, in the, the balsamic moon, the moon, you know, the week right before it goes completely uh, black. Yeah. That, that there's this sort of introspective inward, it's like the lunar winter. You know, and that the, these that annual seasonal ring is uh, recapitulated in the microcosm of the monthly lunar ring, and that the these same you know that the same spring-like energy of like growing momentum emerges in you know in the waxing moon, and then it reaches this peak that's like the peak of summer. All of these things are true across scales, and like by understanding the cycle, he was able to limit his writing to one week a month, but but uh, increase his word count by 40% because wow. he was actually surfing across the wave rather than against it. Yeah. In the future, I think any, any like, truly uh, balanced workplace should afford women the opportunity to not only sit out their time of the month, but uh, meditate upon it, reflect upon it, draw influence, draw uh, uh, introspection and ideas uh, from that experience because it seems to me to be something somewhat holy and and to be perfectly honest outside of the pain and then the other things I can't possibly imagine as a guy I'm kind of jealous of because I have my own uh, lunar cycle but it's it's somewhat you know subtle and not that cool uh, <laughs> the, the women uh, have a more badass relationship to the moon and I, I try to respect that where I can and I feel like honestly uh, women deserve the opportunity to have control over that that stuff well, you know, actually, there's a, a very poorly researched, poorly understood male hormonal cycle. Uh, I think I, there was something recently published about it in Popular Science. Testosterone levels peak dramatically on day 18 of a 30-day cycle. And I've heard elsewhere that there's a 72-day cycle that's associated with the cycles of solar magnetic activity, yeah. which is not really all that surprising because there was a, uh, a researcher in Australia about 10 years ago, recorded several hundred dreams over a few years, and then uh, correlated them with the geomagnetic activity uh, in Perth, where he was living, and found that there was a, a reliable inverse correlation between the strength of the magnetic field and the bizarreness of his dreams, which, which you know, if you think about it, it's like, the weaker the the magnetic grid that's sort of like locking us into consensus experience, uh, the more wild our our imaginative roamings become. Or like a better way of saying this might be, there's more cosmic radiation striking his dreaming brain and leading to bizarre, random firings when the magnetic field around him is lower, and is is uh, deflecting less of that radiation. So like all of these yeah. things are there, and you know the tide affects all all coral, you know all sea critters, uh, male or female. Like estuaries and, and you know uh, uh, shallow bays, etc. They're deeply affected by the moon uh, from one thirty-day period, and you know uh, four-week period, um, and the uh, even torque in uh, the tectonic plates. Uh, this is the same thing as what happened with you know the ice ages when there were massive amounts of ice, uh, water ice, and glaciers on the surface of the Earth, changing the 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 stress and strain, and actually topography of the tectonic plates. The, the same does occur to some, albeit somewhat minor degree, with the uh, the moon and the tidal cycle. Yeah, and then you know it's it's 
I think that there's there's a, a kind of demand that's being made on us the more we learn about these things to recognize that not only in, like in Douglas Rushkoff's case can we be more productive members of society if we take these things into consideration, but that you know we may actually be able to live healthier, more vibrant, more beautiful, more creative lives, and that you know if we take all of these these various cycles into consideration, I mean really our our society, modern society, is the a, a totally aberrant mode of human culture historically, because we're pr- like Western modern humans are pretty much the only society that hasn't been completely obsessed with these greater cycles and understanding, uh, you know, conferring meaning onto the individual life by like posing it within this, this larger shifting, you know, dynamic phenomenon that is the literal reality of our being in a dynamic space. It seems like uh, there's this sort of weird confluence, uh, unfortunate confluence of the the demands that are being made on our attention and and our ability to even notice these things uh, in a way that would empower us to be more co-creative and participatory in these in these cycles you know that there's like a historically there's kind of a masculine version of the magical traditions and a feminine version you know, reflecting what you were saying earlier about about red magic and and the, the menstrual cycle that women in general uh throughout history have taken a more uh, their magic tends to express itself as alignment with these cycles and men tend to look at it as well, how can my knowledge of these cycles increase my power so that I can transcend their hold on me? You know, but like maybe we're being called in this in this age to integrate both of those modes and like you know, recognize how these two uh, ways of seeing the world are actually going to live together and take in the biggest possible perspective that we can on the situation. Yeah, and actually uh, that brings me to uh, sort of the, the side topic or maybe even the main topic for uh, today's conversation, which... Um, I hope you don't mind, is Star Wars, is uh, the new incarnation of The Force Awakens, because... Ah, uh, no, not Star Wars. Oh, yeah, we're doing it. Uh, it's my birthday week, I get to make the calls, I, I, your birthday week just passed, so we'll, we'll take it there for, for a little bit, we can bring it back if you need, but I did want to say, uh, because of the, the Neil Gaiman uh, uh, seminar video that you sent me, and we'll, we'll link to for the Long Now Foundation... That there were some dramatic parallels between his uh, presentation, his speech, and uh, where the Force Awakens was was taken, and also with reflection of what you just mentioned with respect to like the the feminine, the masculine, the retelling of, of uh, the the great story, uh, the hero's journey, which is not uh, necessarily one or the other, male or female. Uh, it is a universal tale, and the way it's being represented now. So. Um, I'll let you interject for a second, and if you don't mind, we'll get back to that for at least a, a short bit, because I am very interested yeah. to talk about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, just to clarify, folks, uh, Evan has expressed his fondness for homework and, and preparation, so I sent him a two-hour lecture to watch today before we started our talk, and uh, this lecture is superb. It's uh, the author, Neil Gaiman, uh, author of uh, Sandman and uh, American Gods and co-author of of uh, Good Omens. And, and Coraline as well. Uh, Stardust is, is now available in movie form uh, starring Robert De Niro. 
uh, and Claire Danes on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, super great. We're not working for them, uh, by the so, way. I just so Neil them. Gaiman, who is this this exemplary living legend, modern storyteller, gave a talk at the Long Now Foundation in California, uh, which is dedicated to uh, enculturating a long view in people, to like uh, encouraging people to take not just a seven-generational perspective, but they actually started adding a zero to the beginning of all of their year dates. So this year is 02016. Yep. Because little tweaks like that, little perceptual hacks, enable us, uh, or, or rather, you know, guide us into taking a very long perspective on, on our actions and, and their influence on future unborn generations. Super great. They've got an amazing plenary uh, presentation series that you can watch on the long now on longnow.org and and uh, Neil Gaiman's talk was on how to make stories that last you know the the critical example in his case uh, in the, in his talk was the panel that the United States government assembled to or rather sort of like an interdisciplinary think tank I guess to figure out how to properly mark our nuclear waste disposal sites so that in 10,000 years, when the writing has changed, when the, you know America has been forgotten and all trace of it has been lost, and he makes the point that you know basically nothing that we consider uh, bad uh, or a warning within the, the framework of our our current system would qualify. You know, like that even even a, a skull or to say that something is toxic. You know, that the way that our slang mutates so rapidly. So he actually suggested, uh, or rather one of the people in this, in this research group suggested that perhaps the best way to make information carried through the generations is through the creation of ritual and myth and uh, to, basically to found a religion. And found a religion that doesn't even necessarily have to be about atomic waste and avoiding a particular area, but which will still nonetheless pass on an emotional charge through generations that would keep people away from this site. You know, perhaps a story of how dangerous it was, you know, but that, that, that story will grow and adapt and evolve to suit the changing climate of the time and the power of belief and ritual will uh, sort of hold it in place. And so really, you know, exactly. this is... Uh, Totally what George Lucas is doing, and I'll let you take it from here, because I have no idea what you're about to say. <laughs> right on. Well, not, not so much, again, what, what George Lucas is doing, but what he has done, what he started. Uh, he is, in a way, the uh, echo of Darth Vader, that Kylo Ren and J.J. Abrams are continuing uh, and going to finish what he started, so to speak. Um, I, I love the idea of uh, our modern mythology being now a multi-generational story where you know, uh, the passing of David Bowie as of a few days ago, rest in peace, uh, Mr. Starman, um, mm. is now a multi-generational celebration of a person's life. And uh, Star Wars has become, in some ways now, a, a third-generational story where there are a lot of people that still care a lot, actually, about the prequels, believe it or not, as shoddy as it may have been in some ways, that actually deeply <laughs> identify with them. And I know we may laugh at that because... We're 80s babies, and we fell in love with the original trilogy first and foremost, but I, I understand how, in some ways, the prequels continue that inspiration of, uh, you know, incredible imagination and, and bizarre storytelling and surprises and things you didn't expect 
um, could make people have a conflicting sense of the, the new trilogy, which is starting now with The Force Awakens, with J.J. Abrams and being continued forward with uh, Ryan uh, Johnson, who did Looper and uh, episodes of Breaking Bad, and then uh, from, from there with uh, Colin Trevorrow, who did Jurassic World, which uh, you and I could talk about again at length uh, with as well. Uh, yes, I know. Yeah. Uh, think about Less think excited about, about that one than Ryan Johnson, let me tell you. Yes, uh, but, but think about Return of the Jedi. It was, in retrospect, a fun romp, just like A New Hope was. The core, like, like with most of us, like with most of my friends, like with you, with uh, uh, my uh, closest uh, companions, my, my girlfriend, my family, I want to know the core of them. And if you look at a trilogy, like, the, the, the core is the second episode. It's like, when you look at a trilogy of albums, for example, like the first three that any uh, producer or, or uh, uh, band will release, the second one, the sophomore album, is like kind of a... It's always a pressure to take it on, on what happened, but also truly do something new and then do something unique. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity going forward. But I do want to relate, before we, we go past The Force Awakens... Um, the parallels between what Neil Gaiman said about the, um, the quintessential uh, archetype of the fall into the fire, into the volcano, as uh, Luke himself fell into the pit in Empire Strikes Back, as the, the Emperor fell in Return of the Jedi, and as Darth Maul fell in uh, Phantom Menace. The, uh, the fall of Han Solo into the pit of a planet which, although it may have seemed a, a direct copy of A New Hope, uh, that planet was not destroyed. It turned into a star. It turned into a sun at the end, which I know is uh, one of your favorite topics in terms of uh, astrophysical phenomena. So I'll let you take it from that point. That is an interesting point of consideration that we are... It, it, actually, it echoes for me uh, the uh, Arthur C. Clarke theme throughout his, his 2001 series into 2010 and 2061, 2010, which was adapted to film, very strange, very, very different from the uh, the original Stanley Kubrick uh, adaptation to screen, which understandably, because it was, uh, 2010 was adapted from a book, whereas 2001 was written, uh, the film and the book were written uh, in tandem with each other. Yeah, so, parallel. But, but there's this theme in, in there where this mysterious alien intelligence that has left us the monolith, is also uh, engineering changes in our solar system elsewhere. That they're not just engineering changes in the human being, but in our planets. Yeah. And so at the very end of 2010, and it becomes the central matter of 2061, uh, Jupiter is engineered to collapse on itself and form a star. A new sun in the solar yeah. system. So we have two we And have so binary. there's, you know, the... the you, you might say that uh, archetypally or symbolically that even though Han Solo was not Force-sensitive or enabled enough to form a blue ghost, uh, you know, or at least he probably, probably we're not probably going to get uh, a blue ghost Han Solo in future installments. What if we do? Like Han Solo, well, I guess Harrison Ford has been commissioned to come back for episode 8. He is clearly dead, so, so the, the possibilities are A, he comes back as a hologram, B, as a force vision, or C, as a force ghost. And what are the differences there, exactly, anyway? But so, you know, this, this uh, shimmery blue ghost thing that uh, persists after the person has died, that, that, that we witnessed this with Dave Bowman, the astronaut that makes it through the monolith in 2001. Right. 
and and uh, appears to people as sort of an apparition, uh, helping assure them that the bizarre changes our solar system are undergoing are going to be uh, are going to result in something beautiful. You know, uh, Kubrick and uh, Clark were extremely extremely detail oriented. Think about the name Dave Bowman. And who recently died? The star man himself. David Bowie. Mm. That was not inconsequential. I, I guarantee if you were to ask uh, uh, Kubrick today if he were still alive, um, you would find that tidbit. And, and there have been a, a lot of uh, breadcrumbs uh, leading in that direction that he was a metaphor for David Bowie as the star man, as, as the character of that person. Mm. And then, you know, I, uh, I don't know if you ever actually watched this, but I interviewed the historian William Irwin Thompson a couple times, and in our first interview in December 2011, uh, which we will post a link to if we can remember to do so, sure. uh, he, he actually rapped at length about 2001 as an encoding of uh, information on esoteric initiation, and said if you look at the, the craft, the, the ship that they used to, to venture out there, that it is essentially a human spinal cord, like a nervous system. The head, the control booth is in the front, and yeah. then it proceeds down this sort of spinal array to the very end. Yeah. And that, that the conflict between Hal and Dave Bowman is the conflict between the transcendental potential of humankind and this sort of uh, this survival urge out of which proliferates the entire military-industrial complex and all of our war and conflict and that that uh, there's this you know that that especially poignant moment where Hal starts to glitch as he's being systematically shut down is this really beautiful uh, instance where we're we're being invited to into a moment of empathy for the machine for the machine that all of us are for this you know for this survival drive that each of us possess that is actually in in this world and it, with respect to uh, the you know, the way that it keeps us from transcending ourselves, which is, you know, inherently dangerous to to the, the ego and the idea of the separate self, that there's this moment of compassion for this thing that is is unable to see over the hill, as it were, is unable to understand the greater mission and and regards the fulfillment of that mission as a threat. But at any rate, the there is something cool going on there about it's almost like Han Solo uh, sort of inseminates the the military-industrial egg of the <laughs> of the Star Killer base, and and then we have this this uh, True. luminous apotheosis at the end, you know, where of course, like even if you know, maybe maybe the energy of that explosion is enough to propel him into blue ghost status. <laughs> it might be. Well, well, see, the thing is, it's like again, it's known as Star Killer Base, but at the end of the film, it itself collapses into a star. It is a star birth. It is the opposite of what it was meant to be. And if you see at that that scene where, uh, again, spoiler alert, and we should probably put this at the beginning of the episode, Han Solo oh, yeah. dies <laughs> uh, in <laughs> um, the Force Awakens. Uh, that at that at that moment in time, as a reflection of both the motifs in Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and a lot of uh, well-known uh, film, uh, the lighting actually reflects the characters. And if you watch Kylo Ren's or Ben Solo's face uh, during the opening of that sequence of him on the bridge with his father Han Solo, he is mostly bathed 
in natural light, which has been brought in by Ray, the ray of light walking in and opening the door and revealing the light of the dying star on his face. And it's only at the moment of the star totally fading and having its energy absorbed uh, uh, 100%, uh, 110%, whatever it might be, by Starkiller, that uh, Kylo Ren changes his mind. Uh, and he uh, realizes that his father is there to help him choose the dark side and not the light, and uh, murders his father to propel him towards Snoke and towards the dark side, towards Mustafar and the uh, Empire uh, of Yore, towards his grandfather, Darth Vader. But, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a really cool thing going on in this series, which I admire, especially in light of, as strange as this might sound, in light of the advertising campaign that came out around this film. Yeah. So there was, there was this, uh, this thing that they started doing uh, for this film where it was, and, you know, and this, I can get cynical about this and say that, that this is, uh, you know, just marketing psychology and that they're just manipulating people, but... At the same time, a lot of the advertising surrounded this choice where, where various partners and retailers were offering people uh, an identity decision. You know, are you going to partner with the light side or the dark side? You know, which side are you? And so they might offer, you know, like chocolate and vanilla or whatever. You know, I mean, it's like it's kind of lame on that <laughs> level. But there's this other level where uh, in 1977 – there would not have been a chance in hell that they would have said to the audience, so, hey, you know, do you identify with Darth Vader? You know, do you, you know, do you uh, sympathize with the anti-hero? And so, in a way, the, the cultural response around this film uh, reflects the actual moral development, the, the increasing moral complexity that we're being uh, led into by these filmmakers, where... You know, the prequels, which I love, uh, at least in theory. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I was yeah. I was super, super obsessed with the whole notion of Anakin Skywalker and like what would turn a person to the dark side. They give us this opportunity to see that like bringing balance to the force does not mean, you know, wiping out one side of the equation to to make the light side in all of its sort of uh, liberal fascists. Uh, elitist weirdness, you know, as it existed, as the Jedi existed at the very end of that Republic, you know, um, it, it was about leveling the playing field, right? So, yeah, uh, uh, Michael can tell by my uh, emphatic gesturing via webcam <laughs> that I really want to talk about this. So, uh, uh, Darth Vader is known as, as in a way, uh, the uh, the chosen one or that person that will bring uh, balance to the Force. So it was taken as maybe a, a single generation as him embodying that in particular, but it might actually be that uh, the split between dark and light is some aspect with balance in both. The idea of Gemini, say, in the astrological chart, where you have the, the twins, but those twins are also twins. It's, it's a dark and a light in both uh, sides of the twin coin. Yeah, definitely. Well, this gets back to the, the beginning of our conversation when we're talking about the cultural rejection of winter. And yeah. of sadness, yes, and yeah. generally of of darkness. That that you know we've we've come to associate darkness with evil, uh, due to you know a number of embodied metaphorical entailments. You know that it's it's harder to grow food, and so naturally over thousands of generations, you know we we respond to this uh, spitefully. 
You know, we're like, ah, you know, winter yeah, shaking our fists. <laughs> I see bastard. <laughs> right, but but winter is even if you're not a Capricorn like Evan and I, uh, winter is in us. It's in all of us. Even if you live at the equator, there are you know these little cycles, and and it's like uh, it's the the rejection of death the rejection of aging, the rejection of the feminine, the rejection of the material world and of the body and of, of responsibility. And in a way I see, uh, I see us, it's not a surprise to me that here we are talking about the, the growing emphasis that our culture has put on moral ambiguity in storytelling uh, because really this whole podcast, <laughs> as, as I kind of imagine it, sure. is about... Uh, the the reconciliation of the the light and dark within us as as a is the only sustainable strategy moving quote unquote forward. Sure. So 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 the idea of, of the gray Jedi is is much uh, of the same, in that um, our uh, mantle of Team America World Police has in a way catalyzed <laughs> the generation and the development and spread of ISIS. That uh, perhaps the only way towards world peace is, in fact, uh, towards a moral gray area where there is not so much judgment, there is not so much like a determination and a militaristic uh, uh, response and reflection towards certain perspectives. That there is a great deal more tolerance uh, and, and acceptance. Which, if you look at the uh, the spread of a lot of these more totalitarian, uh, terroristic, you know, jihadist uh, in the Muslim sense regimes. Uh, and I'm talking again a tiny percentage of Muslims and in fact a tiny percentage of just religious people and in fact people as a whole um, they are just a, a subset of, of all of us uh, and representative of, of the downtrodden and the people who don't have other opportunities and there are a lot more of those people than those who are in ISIS there are a lot of human uh, you know spirits and experiences across the globe there are a lot more Americans uh, than there are in ISIS, I think, who are struggling right now with the idea of the American dream. It, it, whether or not they can succeed, if they can uh, pay their way for their families, for their loved ones, for their friends, and have a reasonable and, and, and uh, honorable existence. Yeah, I don't know anyone that's not struggling with that question, honestly. If, I mean, even those of us who are the most well-off uh, that, that I know in my life, you know, the people that are themselves more or less insulated from the the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune are nonetheless concerned about their families and their communities and aware that that a new a new level of collective effort has to emerge and and in so doing uh, you know in the process of this in order to work together we have to disabuse ourselves of this notion that we've been carrying around for probably a million years, which is that the other is bad, you know, and like really understand the, the other as some aspect of self, you know? And so again, you know, again, back to, to Kylo Ren, you know, my problem, oddly enough, I'm curious what you think about this in light of, uh, in light of these matters, you know, my problem with Kylo Ren was, was actually, and this may speak to my sort of generational disposition, <laughs> was not that he is a villain, but that he he's sort of a an incomplete or uh, uh, immature villain. That he's like he's not evil enough, you know. That he's that he's 
essentially a copycat killer and kind of like a whether or not he's able to save the ones he loves or any of these these sort of things but like you know am i there's sort of this this cloud of mystique around what exact value he actually finds in the life of darth vader but nonetheless he's like he's just trying to follow in somebody's footsteps and that sort of makes him innately uh, underwhelming and i wanted i wanted somebody who who was like really and truly and coolly and and brilliantly mean you know who was you know because when you finally when the, the the lightsaber finally goes through han solo you're like after all of that really you know after like after he you know he he defeated all of these amazing foes and survived all these epic adventures. It was so anticlimactic. And I found myself just being, uh, being mad that I didn't have the luxury of the, of the great villain foil. Kylo or, or Ben Solo was my favorite character by far in, in significant part for the exact reason that you cited as a weakness that our generation especially, and this is one of the reasons why George Lucas has now been famously quoted as saying, you know, that The Force Awakens is a nostalgic movie. It's, it's a throwback, you know. The, uh, the idea of uh, the villain as not totally black and white is somewhat parallel to our position now as uh, now young uh, professionals, young Americans. Uh, um, we are now uh, both uh, progressing into our 2016 from the starting point of uh, 1984 uh, you know, uh, in, in kind of like a contextual relation to uh, George Orwell's interpretation, it is not as simple as, as it being entirely dystopian or utopian, that we now live in the, the midst of an interesting gray area between the two. That America itself, a lot of us are employed in, in, in 9 to 5, you know, 40 hour plus weeks uh, at an uh, employer of a particular professional outlet or another. And uh, a lot of us want to find a moral uh, service to our fellow people and to our world. It is a deep question, and in fact, if you look at the data, I believe our generation and younger have been shown to have a, a more uh, conflicted moral set of questions with respect to our employment and our profession, our, our movement forward, and our economy uh, than our parents, our grandparents, etc. In part because we have to, and that's part of why the new Star Wars I think is significant because it it we are gray also. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's actually uh, one of the reasons that I. We're going to take a step sideways because it's almost impossible to bring up Star Wars in 2001 without bringing up Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah, this, this issue of, you know, that's a story from a different age. Right. And there's a story where you have someone who, Gandalf, who existed for, you know, this unthinkably long time as the Grey. And is finally in his conflict with darkness sort of polarized or militarized into Gandalf the White, that we regard this as this, you know, in this in the society in which the story was told, this seems like an upgrade, you know, but in, in some respects, it's actually uh, like an epigenetic adaptation to an especially desperate situation, that he has the luxury of that grayness, of that moral ambiguity, and then as soon as uh, you know, the, the darker the shadow, the, the brighter the light required to penetrate it. There's that kind of a thing going on where he's, he, he's forced to take a side. And, you know, that, again, that, that sort of plays itself out in the, you know, Star Wars marketing, you know, take a side. But yeah. it's also, I, you know, in a way it feels like that 
is in some sense falling behind us, or at least I hope that we're in an age now where the complexity of the age requires a more honest acknowledgement of our complexity as quote-unquote individuals rather than uh, you know, requiring us to step to one side of a dividing line and identify as only one one self or another self, you know. Right. Uh, I'd rather be Gandalf the Grey than Gandalf the White because uh, there's more there's more creative freedom, there's more opportunity, and, and therefore you're capable of doing more good in some sense. I feel a parallel with this because my grandfather was the chief of security for the Apollo uh, program at NASA. So he worked personally with Werner von Braun, with Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> um, I still have all of his, uh, his NASA badges. He worked there for over 25 years. I have uh, documents uh, from NASA signed by the uh, chief of NASA. And uh, I look up to him a lot. Your middle name is redacted, if I recall. <laughs> uh, to some extent, yes. But my, my grandfather was uh, way into guns, way into security, way into aliens in space. He is my Darth Vader. Uh, between the dark and the light, between my hippie parents and my uh, uber-industrial-military-complex NASA grandpa. <laughs> because they pulled off some amazing shit. I believe we went to the moon, uh, in part because I'm highly biased from my family experience. But uh, dang, dude, it's it's a weird uh, parallel to my own life, and I feel like a lot of people have that, that feeling uh, to Star Wars and to a lot of uh, modern uh, stories, including Mad Max. Yeah, you know, I think there's... There's a, the, the thread that I'm starting to identify here is that uh, there's a, this, this thread that a devil is an angel denied. And that, I think this was, again, this was like a Joseph Campbell thing, that you know, this was a line that he, he ran on, and maybe I can find the original quote here. Uh, but this idea that when we, it's, it's, it has to do with the relationship between pain and pleasure, and that intensity, uh, when we when we accept it, when we embrace it, becomes pleasure. But when we reject it, it becomes suffering. And that, you know, it would make sense. Your your hypothesis of Kylo Ren's uh, falling out with the Jedi Academy and, and Luke Skywalker would make sense in light of the notion that that uh, it it, it kind of gets back to that this. This thing about Hitler being denied from art school, you know, like, would we have had a second world war if Hitler had been encouraged as an artist? Exactly. So, so actually, here it is. I found the, the Joseph Campbell quote. It's from An Open Life. It was actually just uh, tweeted to me the other day nice. by, by Michael Phillip at the Midwest Real podcast, which is another fabulous podcast. My definition of a devil is a god who has not been recognized. That is to say, it is a power in you to which you have not given expression and you push it back. And then like all repressed energy, it builds up and becomes completely dangerous to the position you're trying to hold. And then this is where we are in society. This is what, this is, you know, uh, we are Kylo Ren. He's denying, and he may, he may kind of be the opposite side of the fence. He's denying his innate potential for good. You know, he actually regards it as is as a, a weakness and a, like a virus that he's trying to like extricate from his system. But whichever side you pick, you're going to end up, you know, standing with one leg on the cliff and the other leg hanging over the the ravines. The return of the Black Madonna, a sign of our times, or how the Black Madonna is shaking us up for the 21st century. This is by Matthew Fox. We'll post a link to it. 
one of the best articles I've read on this issue, on the situation of of what we stand to reclaim by re, by retrieving culturally and and personally all of that which we have denied into our complete being, and how this is a necessary thing. Like this is, you know, as far as we, I, I have no doubt that we're going to continue to get like super out there and abstract and ethereal in these conversations. Oh yeah. But but when when it comes to the matter of what it is that we can can offer the unborn generations, to me it seems like this this holistic view that accepts both the angelic potential and the animal reality of the human being.